Welcome to the Ageing Project podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm your host, Shelley Craft. As I've got older, I've come to realise we all need advice when it comes to ageing well. So for season one of the show, I've pulled together the best possible support team for us. Doctors, researchers, coaches and creatives. Nothing is off limits. Food and nutrition, movement and mobility, menopause and gut health. Finding a sense of meaning. I want to cover it all. I believe with the Ageing Project community banded together, our choices will be infinitely better, more informed, more considered. So if, like me, you believe Ageing Well starts now, then let's get going and start learning from some of the best. Welcome to today's episode. Everyone you speak to has a story and it's going to be uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, or maybe it's Alzheimer's dementia, or a, a certain type of cancer. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. There are populations, people living around the world who are not experiencing that same chronic disease burden as we are. Today's conversation with Simon Hill got me thinking just how important our daily food choices are for not just our health, but the future of the planet. Our choices really do matter. Enjoy today's episode and join us on our socials as we challenge ourselves and you to make some shifts in the kitchen. If people hadn't heard of Simon Hill, mm. which would be crazy, and of course, plant proof, can you give us a bit of a, an elevator pitch about who you are and what this is all about? Sure. So, uh, Today, I guess I, I'm known for the work that I do with Plant Proof, as you said, the podcast and uh, utilizing social media to try and make nutrition a little less confusing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a super confusing topic and I really don't blame people for being confused. I was confused myself for a long while there um, and, and when I was confused, I uh, decided I would go back to university and do a master's in nutrition science. And I went and did that and uh, ultimately decided I would uh, write a book and, and utilize not just my own learnings, but the, the connections that I had built with these scientists and researchers from around the world. So, you know, very much the book is me standing on the shoulders of, of people with far more experience than myself. Uh, the reason I was interested in nutrition in the first place was when I was 15 years old, I saw what loss of health looks like for the first time. I was with my dad. He had a heart attack in front of me and it was just him and I. So a pretty frightening scenario to find mm -hmm. yourself in. And, uh, long story short, uh, I had to speak to the paramedics and we had to get a helicopter. Uh, we were in a very remote location and he was flown to the hospital and there was a long waiting period. They fortunately saved his life. Uh, you know, today, sudden cardiac death is the leading cause of death globally. It's the most likely reason that any of us in Western countries in particular are to die. And sudden cardiac death, if people haven't heard of that, is mm -hmm. literally no clinical diagnosis, symptoms onset, and within an hour that person dies. So it's out of nowhere. Uh, and this is really not spoken about that, that frequently. So people are usually shocked when they hear that. Uh, and, and so the sort of aftermath of that was a conversation with the cardiologist who explained to my brother and I that we had a family history of cardiovascular disease. My grandfather had also had a heart attack 
and there's probably people listening, to be honest, because of how common cardiovascular disease is that are relating to this right now. And uh, he, he sort of said to us, the cardiologist, that as we got older, we would need to be screened for, for cardiovascular disease and keep an eye on it. I was 15 at the time. My brother was 18 and, and my dad was 41 when he had that heart attack. God. So he was basically saying, look, it's genetic. You're in line mm-hmm. for it. Um, it's going to happen to you. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. And that's a very disempowering kind of message. And I don't think that was his intention. I just think that, you know, that was 20 years ago. So there was even less research on the role mm-hmm. of lifestyle in, in, in chronic disease, but also uh, a sort of... Uh, the setting perhaps didn't allow for a broader, deeper conversation. You know, yeah. this was a quick five, 10 minute sort of consult. Uh, and so it was, you know, many years I did live my life and my brother did. In the back of our mind, we kind of thought, well, you know, our dad had a heart attack at 41 and, and Shelly, w- my dad wasn't someone you'd look at and say, oh, he looks unhealthy. Yeah. He looked like a healthy young Australian father, yeah. uh, you know, perhaps a little overworked, like most parents, you know, trying to make ends mm-hmm. meet. But he was, he was, you know, going to the gym three, four, maybe five days a week. He was not. He was doing all the eat- right things, supposedly. He, he wasn't eating McDonald's every day. He was eating the the sort of meat and three veg and 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 sort of doing the occasional or or sort of semi occasional bit of exercise and and whatnot. And so he was representative of what we thought was just normal. Yeah. And therefore, you know, why would, why would, you know, our fate be any different? Mm-hmm. Uh, Isn't that crazy? And- my, my dad was the same. And it's that weird thing you get to an age where they say, oh, do you have any um, family history of this or that? And you start rolling them off. It's like, oh, yeah, dad had a heart attack, prostate cancer, mum's had a stroke, uh, my uncle had diabetes, you know, and you start thinking, my God, am I predisposed to mm all of these things um, and as you say really disempowering and really sobering at the same mm. time we've really normalized these diseases mm. they're so normal that you know all of our friends their families being affected by them our families being affected by them everyone you speak to has a story and it's going mm. to be uh, you know cardiovascular disease or maybe it's Alzheimer's dementia or a, a certain type of cancer uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. There are populations, people living around the world who are not experiencing that same chronic disease burden as we are. And ultimately, uh, and when you look at the research and they've teased this out with identical twin studies where twins with the exact same genes end up living in different environments. So you can say, hey, how much uh, say does genes have versus the environment? And our genes probably account for around 20% of, of the, 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 our health outcome and the environment, the way we navigate through life accounts for about 80%, which means we have far more control than, than most of us think or have been led to believe, particularly myself. And so we can flip that narrative and it becomes very empowering. There are things that we can do to improve our health span, slow down aging at a cellular level and then hopefully get to enjoy life for longer. I love the fact that this book particularly, The Proof is in the Plants, is so, well, digestible, excuse the pun. (laughs) You're obviously a very well-educated man, but you've made this so simple for all of us to just read and, and digest that information without it sounding A, overwhelming, B, too hard, um, and C, scary. 
And that's what I'm loving about it as I go through. There's just these tidbits all the way along that you can change today, that you can add today. As complicated as nutrition science may seem, if we look at the current Australian diet right now and you said, what are the key things that people can just focus on, can clearly identify, and they will help slow aging, help improve health span and lifespan? I would just summarize it by saying, we're eating far too much animal protein, not enough plant protein. That's clear. We're eating a fiber deficient diet. Our, the amount of fiber in our diet is about 12 to 15 grams. Currently, that needs to be double that. We need to be getting that up to around 30 grams. And the only way you're going to increase fiber is through adding more whole plants, fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And then uh, on top of that, we need to be really reducing our consumption of these ultra processed foods the the kind of white flour biscuits and cakes and um you know sugar laden products that are you know typically the ones in 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 the sort of uh, all the packaging in the central part of the grocery stores and if we if we were to focus on those three components choosing plant protein a bit more over animal protein where you can which means Sometimes not eating the red meat and instead having kidney beans or chickpeas or uh, tofu or tempeh. Um, and then we focus on increasing fiber and focusing on decreasing the ultra processed foods. You're moving to a very, very healthy dietary pattern that is in line with what we're seeing leads to longevity. And that seems so easy, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> So it does seem, I guess it's easier said than done. Um, it's a simple message in terms of what we need to do. Um, but I guess this is not really a case of knowing what to do. It's doing what we know. <laughs> and and that means changing our behavior, which means building new habits. Uh, and so trying to change lots of things at once doesn't work that well for most of us. And it's better, it's far better to take a bit of the pressure off, not be so judgmental on yourself and, and think that you need to do this perfectly uh, and step it out, slowly change little parts of your diet uh, over time, over a longer period of time, months, you know, if not a year, and you'll be surprised how far you come and it'll be a lot less overwhelming. And, you know, I don't want people to take the information in my book make changes for two weeks and just revert back to what they've been doing. I would far rather they take a year or two years and they become, you know, changes that they still have or, or still um, the behaviors are, are still there in a couple of decades time. And if you're thinking about doing this at around, you know, midlife, you can actually reverse the damage you've already done. Yeah. Well, you can, the risk factors for disease that underpin most of these diseases, whether it's high blood pressure or high cholesterol or inflammation, you know, poor blood glucose control. As you shift your diet, these these risk biomarkers will move in a more favorable direction within months, you know, depending on the extent of the changes that you're making. Mm -hmm. But the human body is very resilient. And at the end of the day, something like, let's say, high cholesterol. We talk about high cholesterol causes heart disease, but really it's about how many years, decades are you exposed to that high cholesterol. So you're right, you know, making these changes in your in your 40s is definitely not too late. It's not too late in your 50s or 60s. You can you can really make huge improvements in your health, slow down cellular aging and you know, we know that when when people quit smoking, 
um, you know, after about 10 or 15 years, their risk of developing lung cancer goes back to almost what a non-smoker is. So um, there is a lot to be optimistic about. And, you know, sooner the better. I, I hope that people are inspired and start making small changes straight away. But yeah, go at your own pace and certainly never too late to get started. That's it. I love in chapter nine of the book, it's called The Optimal Diet for All Life on the Planet. So this is basically if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for the planet. Uh, mm. we, we sort of eat unconsciously, I suppose. We're just consumers. But can you help us understand some of the main points from this chapter and, and what do you want us to know about eating to save the planet? Sure. Uh, and this was something that, you know, I initially, when I was studying and, and going through my own transition, I had very little understanding of. Uh, but our, our food choices do affect the world around us, you know, dramatically. And we've turned Earth into a giant farm. And it's, it's causing, the you know, contributing, I should say, to the warming of the planet, uh, biodiversity loss, uh, water scarcity. We're seeing um, ocean dead zones as a result of, of agriculture. And by and large, I always get asked this, how do I simplify this message about our food system and the environment? We are using far too much land to produce our calories. And that is because our current agricultural system is very inefficient. So if I was to break this down, we, we currently use about 50% of all of the habitable land on earth, all of the land that we could use for cities or food and actually access, so not like frozen land, 50% of all habitable land we use for agriculture. Now, here's the deal and here's the problem. 83% of that land for agriculture is used for animal agriculture, but it only gives us 18% of our calories. So it uses up all of this land is emitting a lot of uh, emissions through methane and through the clearing of forests to make this the space for, for, for the animal agriculture practices, for grazing largely, yet it's giving us such a very small amount of our calories. And if you look at the IPCC or any of these environmental organizations, they all the consensus position is we need to move to plant-rich diets. And there's there's two main reasons for that. One is plant foods are responsible for significantly less direct emissions. So for example, per 100 grams of, of protein, tofu is responsible for 30 times less emissions than beef. Um, but the main reason is that land use, right? So if you, those statistics I just said, if you flip that, that means that 17% of the land is used for plant agriculture. Mm -hmm. and, and that is giving us 83% of our calories. So what it would mean is if the world was shifting to more plant-rich diets, we would free up vast amount of land, which then could be reforested. And there's been a, a calculation done, and this is a theoretical, because this is not going to happen. But if the entire world was to go plant-based, completely plant-exclusive overnight, we would free up land the size of Africa in terms of land that we would not need for food production, which could then be uh, reforested. And the benefit of that reforesting is that it's drawing down enormous amounts of carbon that is helping to, to cool the planet and help us meet our uh, climate goals. So what we're seeing right now is a real shift uh, because you might be thinking, well, if farmers own this land, how do we just turn it back into a forest? They need to make an income. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's true. So what we're seeing now is this idea of carbon farming. So uh, farmers, landowners are being incentivized to actually practice conservation. And it's getting to a point, thankfully, and it's, it depends on the governments around the world, but they're putting incentive schemes in place in order to meet climate goals where farmers will make more money by practicing uh, afforestation which is essentially planting trees out on their land rather than animal agriculture. Uh, and, and, and that will help us decrease the amount of land we're using for agriculture overall and will help us uh, draw down you know, enormous amounts of carbon, um, which is completely necessary if we're going to get anywhere near meeting climate goals. That's amazing. That is motivation in itself, isn't it? Yeah, so essentially to, to, to sort of break that down, as you are eating a more plant-based diet, the, the foods that, that you're eating or your overall diet is, uh, is being grown on far less land, which means that you are helping, you know, that, that's your vote for a more rewilded, regenerative world with, you know, where we're seeing the return of those forests as opposed to what we're currently seeing right now is dramatic clearing of forests in certain parts mm-hmm. of the world like the Amazon and other tropical forests that we're clearing to either make room for, for grazing or to, to grow feed crops like soy, which are then fed to factory farmed livestock. Um, so it's just another added bonus of, of moving to a diet that's more plant-rich uh, over and above the the sort of direct health benefits that that you'll get as well. You say that we've got health benefits because, as you have pointed out, pretty point blank in the book, it's going to help us um, prevent, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, cancers, heart problems, all of those things. If and of course, saving the planet at the same time. For us, it, it often comes down to a quick fix and what we can do when we're going to see results, how soon we're going to be feeling good. And you've pointed out that, again, we can start making those changes today and we will see those effects very, very quickly. Often it comes down to the aesthetic and how mm. you're feeling in your skinny jeans and things. Mm. Can a plant-based diet um, help with weight loss? Because ultimately that's mm. what a lot of people are going to be driven by, by looking better, not just feeling better, um, sadly. I think that's a huge motivator for all of us. Mm. Is a plant-based diet better for you in the long run and and reducing your waistline? Yeah, so I think one of the potent advantages of a plant-based diet, be it plant-exclusive or plant-predominant, is that the calorie density is much lower. And what I mean by that is plant foods per bite except for, say, olive oil or coconut oil, but if we're talking about whole plant foods, they have much less calories per bite. So you can imagine if you're comparing a a sort of typical plate with uh, animal products on it, meat, for example, to a plant-based plate, to to have the same amount of calories, say 500 calories on both plates, that plant-based plate is going to look like a lot more food. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because it does have that lower calorie density less calories per bite and is rich in fiber people do tend to fill up on fewer calories which is a good thing because if we do want to lose weight we want we want a diet that is working in our favor we don't want it to be about willpower we want to actually feel full but we're consuming less calories mm-hmm. uh, and there was a, a great study uh came out last year it was a, a metabolic ward study which 
in short, is just a study where we bring people into an actual inpatient hospital setting and feed them and monitor them. So it's much more reliable than doing sort of studies out in the real world because we know everything that they're going to eat and we can track their weight and we know everything that they're not eating. And they compared uh, two diets. One was a ketogenic uh, animal based diet. So like a low carb animal diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other was a, uh, a plant based, uh, plant exclusive sort of highish carb diet. Both the diets, the researchers made sure they were really high quality, which is important because sometimes in these studies, they use crummy diets that none of us would, would adopt. So it's, it's not very generalizable. Um, but both diets were really, really high quality diets and each participant did the the diet for two weeks and then crossed over to the other diet for two weeks. And they did it in random order. Um, so some participants did the keto diet first and the plant-based and some did it the other way. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's the really interesting finding. They thought that the low-carb ketogenic diet could be the better diet because there is this idea out there that ketogenic diets are very good for suppressing appetite. That is, that is a, a, a sort of common feedback that you get from people that are adopting low-carb diets. Um, but they also weren't sure because the plant-based diet is very rich in fiber. And as I said, not very calorie dense. So maybe that would perform better. And it did. When, when people were eating the plant-based diet, they ate 693 calories less per day on average, right? That's a lot of, that's a lot of calories. Now, yeah. we, we have to be careful that this is this was a you know two week on each uh, diet, so it's not like we're watching these people for a year. So how generalizable is this? I'd say you know we it's an interesting finding, and it, what it tells me is if you can adhere to this dietary pattern, then you will fill up on fewer calories. But the diet that that study itself doesn't speak to how well will people adhere to this over the long term, and. If we're kind of uh, you know zooming out and thinking about the bigger picture, there are a lot of uh, there has been a lot of research looking at low carb versus high carb, and uh, you know I see both diet tribes fighting over which one's the best for weight loss, and it's really interesting. And I've interviewed some of the researchers that have done this this research. It's and I've changed my view a little bit because I used to be quite opposed to the whole low carb uh, sort of. Uh, dietary approach. But what these studies show, Shelley, is that uh, overall, when you look over like a 12 or a two, 12 month or a two year period, there isn't a significant difference in weight loss between groups, between a low carb sort of diet and a high carb diet, which is what a plant based diet would be, relatively higher carbs. Um, there doesn't seem to be a significant advantage to, to one or the other. But in each group, you have people that do well and people who do poorly. And this is the key thing. I don't think we've teased out yet to date why some people do better on low carb and some do better on high carb. I think future research will tease that out. But I am definitely open to the idea now that there are certain people that will do better on the low carb and some will do better on high carb when it comes to weight loss. My recommendation for people is that the most important thing is diet quality. And none of this changes the fact your diet should be plant-rich. You can do a plant-rich diet as low-carb or you can do a plant-rich diet as high-carb. The first thing is making sure the diet's plant-rich and then you know play around with your macronutrients and do whatever is going to help you achieve your goal of weight loss or, or whatever else you're focusing on. 
I think you have convinced us all, definitely me, to give it a red-hot crack anyway. And all we can do is, is give it a go and, of course, just make mm. those little changes every single day. And who knows, by by Christmas um, or by Easter or by next June, you might be on a full plant-based diet. The proof is definitely in the plants. It says it right here in the book. Simon, if we want to make a change, what should we do starting today? Make one change. So start today and, and start small. One little change. I think the the project that I would send people away with is in the next week, I want you to think about two or three meals throughout the week where you can swap meat for a type of legume. It could be black beans. It could be chickpeas. It could be kidney beans, tofu, tempeh, any of those, right? And it might be two or three meals in your next week. Start there. See how you go, and then you can you can add changes on top of that if you feel if you feel comfortable. We're going to do it, Simon. We're going to do it together, and we are going to check back in with you, uh, perhaps yes, in our second series, and tell you how we're all doing on this one. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you so much. There it is. The proof is in the plants. How science shows plant-based diets could save your life and the planet. This is our mission here at The Aging Project. Save ourselves and save the planet at the same time. Sounds like a good deal to me. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you very much. It was a, a real pleasure. So, okay, have we got this? Can we trade our bolognese for beans? (laughs) Let's see how we go. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into Simon Hill's work, check out his podcast at Plant Proof. There is so much there to digest. And that's the last time I'll say it. We'd love to see your journey. We'd love to share your journey. So make sure you tag us at The Aging Project Podcast. And I'll see you all next week. Ciao. The Aging Project is brought to you by Poly Studio. They're our go-to team for all things podcasting.